From Honor Flight Chicago, this is a veteran story. At the height of the Korean War, young Bob Guilfoyle decided to enlist in the Marines. He acknowledges today that he had no idea what he was getting into, but says he was driven by patriotic spirit. When Bob arrived in South Korea, his immediate commanding officer thought he'd been trained as a radio operator. He was wrong. Bob had been trained for the infantry, but he got an immediate crash course in radio operations. He would find himself as a forward observer calling in strike coordinates to the battleship Wisconsin. He was always in harm's way, dodging bullets and mortars and trying to survive the brutal cold. This is Bob Guilfoyle's story. Let me take you back to 1950. World War II is beginning to get in the rearview mirror, but it's still fresh. The baby boomers are arriving. The country is beginning to thrive economically, pieces at hand. And then the Korean Peninsula goes crazy. And Truman and others make the decision, we have to be involved. We cannot ignore this. The fact that communist forces have invaded Korea is a warning that there may be similar acts of aggression in other parts of the world. Free nations must be on their guard more than ever before against this kind of sneak attack. What was the mood of the country as best you remember it as a young man back then? Well, it, the best I can remember is uh, uh, North Korea went into uh, South Korea and they were starting a spread of communism. The idea was uh, to fight communism. And so you made the decision that was the mood, right. And it was your individual mood, too. I've got to play my part in stopping the spread of communism. It was, and I hung around with a bunch of friends that uh, we used to go and have pizza and sit around, and uh, we talked about it one night, and uh, everybody says, well, why don't we go in the military? We're all at uh, 17, 18 year old. Uh, bunch of gung-ho guys, and uh, uh, I said, that'd be a good idea, and uh, God, there was, uh, I think, six of us. Well, we all agreed to meet at five o'clock in the morning, uh, the following morning. Uh, this was in January of 51, and uh, uh, I was the only one that showed up. <laughs> and, uh, as fate would have it, uh, the other five, believe it or not, uh, all uh, all joined the Marine Corps one year to the day uh, following me. Did you know what you were getting into? Had no idea. Absolutely no idea. Uh, going in the Marine Corps, you know, I, I thought, well, that's a big thing. You know, I heard nothing but good stories about the Marines. And... Uh, <laughs> I got off the uh, off the bus in uh, Paris Island, and they had us line up, and they says, "Okay, now double time." So we all start running into this building, and uh, you know, I was a pretty tough kid. I thought I was anyway. This corporal uh, give me a shove. I wasn't moving fast enough, and I turned around. I says, "Who do you think you're pushing?" Well, God, that was the worst mistake I could have made. They put me in the corner of this building and made me stand at attention. This master sergeant come in and they put me in the corner 
And it wasn't until about 7, 7.30 at night that uh, this guy came through the building. He says, what the hell are you doing in here? I says, I'm standing at attention in the corner. He says, go on with your, uh, your, your platoon. I says, where do I go? Well, anyway, he showed me, and uh, I went in. I had no, they all had bed linens, and they all had things that uh, uh, would start their day out uh, the following day. But I didn't have anything except an empty mattress to sleep on. So that was my start in the Marine Corps. That'll <laughs> teach you not to turn around to the corporal and give him some grief then. Oh, and how it sure did. It sure did. So you came out of boot camp and you were trained for infantry. And you thought that would be your mission when you went to Korea, infantry. Yes, it was. And then uh, we went over to California at Camp Pendleton for uh, uh, advanced training. And... Uh, uh, got sent over to Korea. When we got on got on shore, uh, I was pulled out of a line, me and two other guys, uh, pulled out of the platoon, and uh, they said, you're taking a DC-3 up, uh, you're going east of here. And uh, I says, oh, where, where am I going? They said, we don't know. I was introduced to a, a naval officer, a captain at the time, uh, Lieutenant in the Navy, a captain in the Marine Corps. And uh, he says, uh, uh, welcome to Anglico. I says, what is Anglico? And he says, you're a radio operator, right? I says, no. He says, can you send a fire mission? I said, I don't even know what a fire mission is. I said, the only things I've seen was uh, uh, little backpacks and... uh, walkie-talkies, and uh, he's, oh, my God, I thought you had 17, uh, uh, 17 weeks at uh, Great Lakes. He says, what are they sending me? <laughs> I says, I have no idea, sir. Anyway, to make a long story short, this, uh, this captain uh, took me in the bunker, taught me the phonetic alphabet, taught me the... Uh, at the time was the Anger 9, uh, the radio, showed me what a generator was and how it worked and uh, how to set the, the radio up on frequency and stuff. He taught me everything. To, uh, I took a crash course in two nights. and <laughs> did it take 17, 17 weeks at Great Lakes to go through to become a radio operator. So what does that say about military training? If you can do something in two nights, it typically takes 17 weeks. <laughs> I'm sure they were all better better trained than I was starting out. But you had a mission, and you had to learn of necessity to get it done. So what you're assigned to do, then, is call in coordinates, strike points to right. ships offshore. Right. Uh, the battleship Wisconsin was off offshore, and uh, we were on the east coast of Korea, up at the top of these OPs, and uh, out in front. And uh, what we'd have to do is... Uh, uh, is calling fire missions, uh, we call in 16-inch rounds. What does it sound like when it comes in? Oh, God almighty, like a freight train. When you they shoot the 16-incher uh, off, they, uh, they'll tell you, they used to say, on the way from Gulfly. And uh, about five seconds before it hits, they say splash. That gives you the opportunity to raise up out of the bunker or I should say the trench line, and look on your uh, 
on your uh, uh, binoculars to see where it was hitting. And then from there, you'd bracket the shots. You'd ask for one shot 200 feet lower and uh, 200 feet to the left and su such and such. Uh, and you have a call sign, too. You are Plow Horse, I think. Uh, we were Plow Horse 244 when I was with Submarine. Yeah. So when you when you call in Golf Line, which is the Battleship Wisconsin, you're saying this is Plow Horse 244. Yeah, we did, the way it sounded was uh, we'd get up in the morning about uh, 4.30, quarter to 5, and get on the radio and uh, we'd say, uh, Golf Line, Golf Line, this, this Plow Horse 244 and over. This, Ship had come back to us, but once in a while the Chinese would uh, get on frequency with us. And as we were calling, they'd say, uh, they used to call out, Diggawal, 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 as we're trying to talk for interference. And uh, would eventually get to uh, tell them number two, number two, would go to a second frequency, which uh, they wouldn't be able to find us so quick. And we ought to point out that where you are when you're calling in the the strike coordinates is in, is beyond the front line. You're in you're in harm's way, are you not? Normally, uh, six to eight hundred yards ahead of uh, our infantry troops. Yeah. So you're exposed. Yeah, a little bit. They used to the Chinese had come out. They've dug elaborate uh, trenches and and bunkers and stuff uh, and. At night, they used to come out in the summertime, not in the wintertime, and they'd lay up on the mountain. They'd get out of their uh, bunkers and stuff. So we had a, an officer at that time says, uh, well, we're going to find out about this. Every night, they come out, and every morning, we'd, uh, we'd hit them with 16-inch uh, shells, and six or eight shells, there'd be nobody there, so we couldn't... Uh, give an estimate of the KIA or WA wounded or, mm -hmm. or killed in action of the enemy. And this captain we had put a 12-hour fuse, time fuse, on one of the rounds. We bracketed it till we got right on the spot on the hill where it had all come out and lay down. And this thing come over our head like a whoom, whoom, whoom. It hit it, and it didn't go off. Well, then about, uh, I forget what time it was, about 1 o'clock at night, or 1 o'clock in the morning or so, we heard this horrendous balloon. And we were looking through the, the binoculars, and uh, we, uh, we wiped out quite a few, I'd say at least 45, 50 uh, Chinese uh, soldiers. So, so they didn't realize there was a fuse on that bomb? Not at all. Not mm -hmm. at all. They were very relaxed and laying around and, you know, like uh, nothing was going to happen. With the position that you have, being forward or your front lines, were you ever fearful for your own safety? Did you have bullets coming your way or shells of some sort? Uh, yeah, at times. Uh, uh, you know, it's, uh, I think you're young, young and dumb and uh, uh, you don't seem to have fear that uh, you normally would. 
It's something like old age when you don't have the fear, you know. Uh, no, I don't think we have fear. Not as a young man, but as you grew older, come home and you look back at the experience, do you think of it differently? Oh, yes. Oh, yeah, all the time. Uh, all the time. Uh, I uh, I see things that happen. Uh, I had a friend of mine, I won't, I won't say his name, he's on our team, and we had a thing that we'd, uh, we called, uh, this was on the west when we moved to the west coast of Korea. Uh, we called it uh, Spot and Fire. And this friend of mine, a kid from Boston, he went out one day and went into a mortar hole, uh, which the Chinese were fabulous with their mortar shells. And uh, he went out and he was laying in there and he was spotting on fire. And I think they seen him, and they put a, a round, another mortar round, right in where he was at. So he was killed instantly. So uh, he had no fear because he he went out uh, maybe uh, 600 yards in front of us, 500 yards. And we're all sitting back. We told him not to go, but uh, when the shell hit, we saw him get killed and... Uh, we went over, uh, we went, ran out there to, to retrieve him, see if he was all right, but uh, we couldn't see him breathing. The only, did, the only way we saw him breathing, it was cold out, and we took a signal mirror out of our pocket and <clears throat> put it under his nose, and uh, we saw that he wasn't breathing anyway. Uh, he, he was, it was a foolish mistake young guys make in, in, a, in a war zone around a, on the lines. But it's bothersome as you remember it today. I still remember it, yes. Yeah. Yes. Were, uh, were you under fire at that point in time, or you had to take precaution uh, to make Yes, it? we were under enemy fire, and they were also firing in mortars. Uh, so you could have been just like him. Oh, uh, yeah, because we went to get him. Went out of the trench line. That's part, part of the obligation. You don't leave anybody behind, right? Right. Yeah. Did you ever question, after sobering moments like that, did you ever question the mission that you were on? And, you know, the whole business about stopping communism? No, uh, because we had the Chinese uh, in mass come at us uh, at night and stuff. Uh, and, uh, you know, it was, no, we never questioned why we were there. We knew why we were there. We couldn't figure out why the Chinese were there. No, we never questioned why we were there. I don't think so. I, I think uh, we were all too young and patriotic at the time. Do you wonder about that today? Uh, sometimes, yeah. But I still have the same patriotism. My whole family does. The love for America, the love for the United States uh, is... Uh, with our family. We were all Marines. I was married in the Marine Corps 67 years ago, to be exact. Yes, congratulations. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Let me ask you about another enemy, and that was the cold. So many men who were in Korea had problems with frostbite. They lost a lot of fighting men because of the cold, and it was just, tell me how miserable it was during those cold months. Oh, it was... It was uh, I've seen it uh, at 52 below zero when we were outside. 
And they finally got us, uh, we had uh, regular canvas boots for uh, a month or two when I got over there, and then they finally got us these big Mickey Mouse boots, these great big uh, rubberized boots with air chambers in them, and uh, they'd keep your feet dry and nice and warm. But when you took them off at night, the uh, from your feet sweating, the... Uh, uh, ice would accumulate in them, and uh, they, you'd try to put them on in the morning when you climbed out of the sleeping bag. Uh, your feet would be frozen stiff, and there'd be a quarter inch of water in there. So uh, and it, it, it never uh, thawed out until you wore them again, so your feet were getting all wet all day long. I had both my hands and my... Uh, my feet frostbitten in uh, in Korea, uh, mainly uh, getting out real early in the morning and try to set up the uh, the radios on frequency. Anyway, it took you a good fifteen minutes. Well, when you were out in these real cold temperatures at forty, fifty below zero, and you took your gloves off and you're trying to manipulate dials, little tiny dials and get everything in perfect shape so you could send a fire mission, your hands, uh, in fact, one day, uh, uh, I don't know if I should say this, Paul, about telling the officer to kiss my... Yeah, yeah kiss, uh, kiss something. Right. Anyway, I was, uh, we were on the East Coast, and it was very, very cold. It was, like I said, about 50 below, and uh, uh, wind factor was something else. It was cutting through you. Uh and uh, the officer come out, uh, the captain, Navy captain, and he come out and he says, Gil uh, uh, Foyle, you all set up now on frequency? <laughs> and I says, no, and if you can do it, I'll kiss your ass. <laughs> Excuse me. I'll kiss your butt. <laughs> he says, what did you say to me? And I thought, oh, my God. Uh, but I showed him my hands. I says, my hands won't move, sir. He took me in the bunker and uh, he apologized. He uh, he rubbed my hands between his hands and it, to get the circulation going and get the blood going again. And uh, I kept apologizing profusely. I'm sorry, sir. I'm sorry. Uh, you have you a know. thing with superior officers. I, I guess. think so. <laughs> <laughs> Nonetheless, you demonstrated to him that you couldn't do it at the time because of the cold, and it just made life and fighting an enemy in life and death situation miserable beyond comprehension exactly exactly it was uh it was it, you'd wake up in the morning cold you'd go to sleep at night cold you'd get down on the bunker uh you know it was just uh, a thing and then you'd have half the troops would stay awake all night on the lines and stuff so and uh one quick uh story i gotta tell we had a there was uh, four of us sleeping in this bunker. It was about, uh, well, it was about four, four foot high, maybe four and a half foot high, and it was about uh, six by six with logs over it and sandbags on it and everything. And we, on the logs that were holding up the sandbags up above, we put our mess gear. So we had these humongous rats come into the, into the bunker at night. And uh, this one fellow, I was sound asleep. I was, I was beat. 
and I hear this horrendous boom. I says, Jesus, I'm yelling for these guys, asking them if they're hit. I thought it was a direct hit with a mortar. Here was this one guy. <laughs> He's, he shot a rat. He caught him with the flashlight going into our mess gear, and he shot it, blew a 45 through him. He says, I got that son of a bitch. Well, when it fell down, it fell on uh, it, it fell on the bottom of my legs on a sleeping bag. And naturally, you, you jump up in a hurry and you feel the, something on your... I thought my legs, I thought I was shrapnel on my legs. Well, here was a dead rat bleeding all over so, <laughs> in the dark. So, Well, you, hey. don't, you don't expect these things when you enlist, right? Not at all, not at all. And the, the guy that... Uh, the guy that shot the rat, well, obviously he hated rats, but uh, <laughs> I guess so. Cared the living Jesus out of all of us. <laughs> How long were you there in Korea? 11 months. And how'd you get message that you were going to be discharged, you were going to be able to come home? Uh, we knew there was a regular rotation period. Okay. With uh, uh, When we went over there in 51, we relieved guys from the Incheon invasion. Well, then you came home. What kind of a reception did you get when you came home? How did oh. people react for your individual Excellent. homecoming. Excellent. People were, uh, I was having my beers at the time, and people that uh, wouldn't let me put a dime up on a the bar. They'd uh, do, buy all our drinks for us. Uh, they want to talk about Korean stuff. Well, you just tell them, well, it was cold and it was hot. You know, cold in the winter and hot in the summer. Mm -hmm. And uh, they, the, the people... Uh, appreciated uh, uh, the fact that you were in the military, in the, especially in the Marine Corps, and uh, they thought we were superheroes or something, you know. Uh, but they appreciated all the servicemen that were in at the time of the Korean War. It wasn't like Vietnam. Tell me the story of you're driving along, and I think you were with your mom, right? <laughs> and you see... A hitchhiker. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, um, my mother and my uh, fiance at the time, my wife, uh, we were coming back from North Carolina. I just got back from Korea, just got off the boat. And uh, we're driving back home. I think we we're either on the Pennsylvania or the Ohio Turnpike. And uh, as we're going down, I see a sailor on the side of the road, thumbing what is he's holding his uh, as uh, sea bag alongside him. So he's in uniform. He's in uniform, and uh, I could see his ribbons on him. That uh, he had a Korean ribbon on him. So uh, I pulled over, and my mother started screaming at me. He said, "Ah, Bobby, he might be a murderer. He might be a killer. <laughs> you hear of people dressing in uniform and." Shooting people, I said, Mom, he's a Navy veteran with Korean uh, ribbons on him. He'll be all right. So I stopped and picked him up and uh, threw his uh, sea bag in the trunk. And uh, we started down the, down the turnpike again. And I said, where are you heading? He told me Hammond, Indiana. 
I said, I'll drop you right off at your door. I says, you just get back from Korea? He says, I did. He says, uh, I says, what did you do? He says, I was a radio operator on a battle wagon, Wisconsin. <laughs> and uh, uh, he says, how about you? I says, uh, I was a radio operator with submarines. He says, submarines? He says, uh, no, plow horse two four forward. I says, he says, this is golf fly, you know. I says, oh my God, what a small world. And my mother was hugging him and kissing him. Oh, she just, she was, I says, oh my God. You this, know. Is, this is the guy you're calling the coordinates to. He's right. on the Wisconsin, your he's, plow horse, he's golf line. He's out on the ship and I'm out on the, uh, out on the land, you know, and he, it was just, uh, it was incredible. It was an extreme, in, extremely incredible story. And what are the odds of that happening, that the oh, two of you who oh, talk by radio only would meet face-to-face? Well, you, face? you always hear the story, it's a small world, and uh, really it is. I, I don't know if the odds are a million to one or, or better, you know. With the benefit of passage of years, you know, we look back at what happened in 1950 and then the, the ceasefire 1953, and while you had a nice reception when you came home, very much unlike Vietnam, the, the, the conflict, and that's the word that's often used, conflict in Korea as opposed to war, it kind of makes it the forgotten war. And yet we lost 33,000, we had 33,000 fatalities in mm-hmm. that war. So it's hardly to be forgotten. Do you ever get the sense that it's it was an event that kind of went over the heads of people or it, it's not it's not gotten the uh, reverence and respect for the efforts that people put into it that it should have uh yes i do uh, uh i think people when you come out home in in uniform and stuff they respected you and were very patriotic in the dim days uh but they soon forgot they forgot all about the chinese uh coming into Korea. They forgot about North Korea invading South Korea. Korea today remains unresolved as a war, as a conflict. There's obviously still the truce. North Korea and South Korea coexist, but there's always the threat of war. As you look at that, uh, with the passage of years now, is that unsettling that there were a lot of human losses, a lot of human effort that went into trying to change a situation that still exists today. Uh, yes, it is. Uh, and after uh, we get to know uh, myself and a few other uh, Marines with Anglico, uh, we get to know uh, the Korean Marines, and uh, they're a fine people. They're uh, just a, a wonderful people. And we can see it now from news how... Uh, how the uh, the North is so disenfranchised and uh, uh, still messed up, where the South is uh, prosperous and doing good because they took on a democratic way of life. So, uh, but the the people are magnificent people. Would you do it all over again if you were a, a young lad once more? I'd do it now at eighty. <laughs> At 88? <laughs> yeah. Whoa. <laughs> yeah.
you decide that you're going to make the honor flight trip and you're not sure if you can physically do it, you had some doubt, as I remember, right? Right. right. But you decide to go. Right. And what happened? Oh, I, I, uh, I had the best time of my life. I was, uh, I was sitting on the airplane next to uh, a woman. Uh, she was from uh, Gary, Indiana. She was 92 years old. And she was a Marine in World War II. And her husband was a Marine in World War II. And she, uh, she started to talk to me about, uh, she says, my husband wanted to go on the honor flight. But he died two months ago. And uh, she says, so I took his place. And she says, I'm going to go for him. Thank you for your service. Oh, what, what an operation it is. It's so unbelievable how they, they put on the honor flight, all these volunteers and stuff. It was fantastic, remarkable. I, it's something I'll never forget. Uh, it was a... Uh, one of the greatest things I ever did. Rewarding? Rewarding. So rewarding. It, it's, it's hard to say, Paul. It, it, it's, uh, it was just satisfaction personified. Mm. I, I don't know how else to explain it. Well, it was, a, it was a, a thank you. Yes. Yes. It, it, was, it was super. Every person you met that was a volunteer you thought you knew him for five years mm -hmm. and the respect and the dedication to their job there was unreal just i i don't have the words i'm not an eloquent enough speaker to give to give you the words of how much i appreciate it and how fine everybody with the honor flight treated me well we thank you for that well, thank you, Paul. And we, we thank you for your service, too. Well, thank you very much. In a very much. cold Appreciate peninsula it. many years ago. <laughs> yeah, thank you. You're welcome. hope you found today's Honor, Thank, Inspire episode to be moving and meaningful. If you did, please consider sharing this podcast and make sure you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The impact Honor Flight Chicago has on the lives of our veterans and their families is made possible by the generosity of our donors. To support our mission, to find our veteran application, to volunteer, or simply for more information, please visit us at honorflightchicago.org.